Donna Sherman has a 35-year history with the Dougie Center. And the Dougie Center was the first bereavement center for children in the United States. She serves on the board of the Compassionate Friends Foundation and is a founding board member of the National Alliance for Children's Grief. She loves to ski camp and ride her Harley Davidson. You have got so much information and I know you're gonna talk about five ways to support grieving children. So here we go. Thank you so much. Uh, well, it, it is an honor to spend this time with all of you today. And I mean, I could probably list 50 ways to support grieving children, but in the 15 minutes that we have today, I want to highlight a few of those and put it in just a tiny bit of context. And that context is the Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Ch Children and Families in Portland, Oregon, was the first program of its kind in the country to support to do peer support groups for children and their families. And our founder, Bev Chapel, was very inspired by this boy named Dougie, who had had contact with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who introduced Dougie to our founder, Bev Chapel. And Dougie was a little boy who was able to support other children. He had a a tumor, a brain tumor that was inoperable. He was diagnosed at nine and died at 13. And our founder with uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's support and many others locally started this place for children to come to be support one another and ultimately for, uh, can, can everybody see you? Uh, Ken is, I don't, I'm assuming people can see Ken, but he's holding up a photo of Dougie. Um, we actually have in our, in our living room at our center. But one of the things that Bev noticed about Dougie was he was able to talk to other children who ha also had uh, advanced serious illnesses and to be encouraging and supportive of them. And Bev was inspired to find a place where kids and families could support one another. We're in our 40th year in 2022. I've been associated for 36 years as a volunteer and, and, and then five years later on staff. And I've been privileged to be able to listen to the children as young as three. We have groups for three to five-year-olds, for six to 12. We have an overlap group for uh, four to eight-year-olds and 10 to 14-year-olds, teen groups. We also have young adult groups, 18 to 24 and 25 up. For the younger kids groups, while they are meeting, there's also a concurrent group for their parent, parents, or adult caregivers to meet at the same time. We have three sites. And of course, we pivoted like most places did virtual during the uh, pandemic and now have really both in-person and um, some virtual groups as well. And again, it would, uh, if it, it's hard to fit what they have, what I have learned from children. And one thing I will say is we really can learn a lot from them. 
if we listen to them and if we pay attention to what they're going through. So I'll, I'll share my, my five points that are the ones that have risen to me uh, for this particular time. And the very first one is that I think one of the most important things we can do as adults is to really listen to our children. And I mean, listen full-bodied, not just their words, but watch them, their actions, listen to what they're not saying, listen to them talking to their friends. And I think as adults, too often we are inclined and usually for good reasons to want to either minimize or try to take away their pain. And I think it's a mistake that we make. Sometimes it's because we aren't able to be present with them in their pain without feeling like we need to do something. I wrote an article one time, it was called, don't just do something, stand there. And people are often saying, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Well, that's okay. Listen, ask a question. A question like, tell me about your dad. What was your brother like? How did you guys get along? What kinds of things did you do together? Are there things you miss? Are there things you don't miss? So being able to listen, and one of the things that I love about, about the word listen, if you rearrange the, word, the letters in the word listen, you get silent. And I think it's, I don't know how that came about in the English language, but to listen, to be silent, to be able to be present in their pain and their joy and their frustration and their fear. And I love what was just shared in the prior uh, panel, uh, who, the, the mother who said, I can hold joy and pain. I can hold you know, what sometimes feel like conflicting emotions, but our children will learn who they can be open with and who they can't be open with. So whether you're a parent or you're in some other role with children who are grieving a death, the uh, opportunity just to listen and to try to put aside what you think you should say, what you, because what they really want is people to listen to them. Kind of going along with that, a second way that we can be supportive of kids who are grieving is to find ways that they can express what they're going through, opportunities for expression. And through those opportunities for expression, they can start to feel connection. They can start to feel they're not completely alone, that someone understands what they're going through. I just a half an hour ago came from uh, Roberta's house in Baltimore, which serves a very underserved uh, population in the Baltimore area, families who are grieving, many families who've had homicide death. And some of the people in the, uh, who, were, who were part of the audience today were sharing with me at the break my mother died when I was seven. My father died when I was 12. 
I didn't know. I didn't have places like Roberta's house. I didn't know what that there were other kids like me. And just knowing that I'm not the only one and finding forms of expression. And we often think about forms of expression as talking. And I, I'm always uh, reminded of Shakespeare's uh, words, give sorrow words, but we have to remember that Shakespeare was a writer. And so we have to help kids give their sorrow expression through painting and drawing and dance and music and pun punching things, not people, but things, physical expression to get it out of their bodies and to be connected to others to know that they're really not alone. The third thing that seems um, very pressing to me at this point in, in time is that there's no one size fits all for any child, for all children or all teens who are grieving a death. There are so many different factors that weigh into what will be helpful for them. There's their developmental age, their prior experience with loss of any kind, the social support systems that they have or the lack of social support systems, how their uh, nuclear family responds, how their extended family responds, what their cultural traditions might be, uh, what they catch when they try to share with others. And I think because no one size fits all, it really does take a village. We all know the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. And we need more culturally appropriate responses. Some youth will flourish in group settings and some won't. Some will benefit from individual therapy. And I want to be clear that I don't believe all grieving children or all adults who are grieving require or need therapy. And it doesn't mean I'm anti-therapy. I'm very pro, but I'm, I'm anti-bad therapy. <laughs> and uh, I really encourage people when they're looking for therapists, if they are for their children or for themselves, to really ask, what is your experience with children who are grieving a death? What is your philosophy around grief? And that really leads me into my fourth point of how do we help them? Uh, how do we support them? How do we assist them? And we live in a society and we have a, at least professionally in the field of, uh, of thanatology, the study of death, uh, bereavement, coping with death and dying. Uh, there's a very strong movement toward pathologizing people who are grieving and saying that they have a mental disorder, they have prolonged grief disorder because of they have a set of symptoms that have been identified by uh, people, certain people in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. And what I would like to counter that with is that what we really need, and I think what youth need is strength-based responses, not symptom-based responses. And the field of traumatology, the study of trauma has done a better job, I believe, in setting some of their trauma-informed responses, which basically ask kids 
what happened to you, not what's wrong with you. And I think that as we help youth tell their stories, find forms of expression, build on their strengths, help them in their own ways in regaining a sense of control of their of their worlds, of their lives, of choices, because experiencing a death, as many adults know and have said, uh, makes you feel so powerless and so unable to uh, to live the life you were living with the assumptions that you had. It it destroys our assumptions of safety and trust and can challenge our spiritual beliefs and and also true for children so i really want to advocate for a strength-based not a symptom-based responses to how we help children help them feel good about what they can be good at and and find those forms of expression and then this ties in a little bit. I think we overemphasize the mental aspect because of our kind of Western medical model of problems that, you know, we're all talking now about mental health of children and adults uh, having gone through two years plus of COVID and all the changes that have occurred. And I, I read a survey recently that said something like 30 some percent of adults feel that their mental health has been challenged and and my response is what's wrong with the other 65 percent <laughs> like how can you not have your mental health be challenged through everything that our world is going through right now but it's more than just mental we have to look at kids and all of us who are grieving deaths and grieving other non-death losses in in the social context of what's happening in the world and and not just look at mental health but spiritual health emotional health psychic health uh, relational health and i know that our families at dougie center who are have experienced deaths during the pandemic whether those deaths were from covid 19 or whether those deaths were from other causes are expressing many of them a lot of feelings of being marginalized that their grief uh, really has been marginalized and also that the person who died did not necessarily receive the honors that they would have in non-covid times in terms of being able to have services and people present and funerals and, and life celebrations. I think these are issues that those of us who are trying to be supportive to people who are grieving will be facing for a long time when things are inching back to a different and new normal. And again, really providing those opportunities for children and teens to find ways to do something with their grief. It may be working on a car, it may be chopping wood, it may be painting paper plates. Uh, it, it could be so many things, but just to keep it bottled up inside, as one of our kids said so uh, clearly, it will come back, it will find ways to get out. So 
brief summary of some things we can do. I appreciate the opportunity to share those with you and hope you'll, uh, for further resources, look on our website at Dougie.org. We have a lot of tip sheets and podcasts and other resources for parents, school personnel, professionals, and others. So Gloria, Heidi, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part today. And again, I look forward to seeing you in person again. Donna, I just want to say, I want to thank you for being a mentor for me and for really changing the way that I teach and work with children. I have learned a great deal from you. You are absolutely the forefront leader in working with children in grief. So thank you so much for joining us today and all the work you're doing. Thank, thank you, Heidi. Thank you, Gloria.